Welcome to Uncle Steve's Iron Maiden Zone, another episode of Somewhere Back in Time with my co-host, Andrew, or actually he's the host today. Andrew, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you, Steve? Doing very good, doing very good. Now, Andrew and I have obviously been chatting up a little bit, just catching up, because it's been a couple of months since we've had one of these episodes, hasn't it? It is, yes. I think it's time for another one. Hi, I'm George, and you're listening to Uncle Steve I Maiden Zone. Yeah, woo! As we go somewhere back in time with my dad Andrew. Come on, Uncle Steve, the show's about to start. about that as an intro what do you have to say there i think that's pretty impressive that had the potential for some use back in the day i think oh yeah well that's an actual air raid siren for uh, um, guernsey which is over there near the uk i believe um that was and i, I got to give credit where credit's due that was totally andrew's idea he said we need to start the episode with the air raid siren and i was like "Ooh, i like that i like that so um but I got to say this. I was I was editing my episode, right? And and for someone that doesn't use any editing software, I had a couple of different files and I had the file for Aces High sitting on there. Just just I just had it there cuz I knew I'd be playing some of it during the mm-hmm. episode. And 
didn't, I didn't put it anywhere for any reason. I just had it sitting there. And so I was playing the air raid siren and just listening to it. Cause I'm going, okay, how long do I want to play this? And all of a sudden in the middle of it, aces high kicks in. And I mean, I got goosebump city, man. It was just like, holy crap. That sounds awesome. So then I had to do a little bit of uh back and forth and back and forth, moving it around and figuring out exactly how I want to play. Oh my God. I texted Andrew earlier and I was just like, dude, you are going to love this because I, I think this is even better than what he told me. And I'm, I was like, you know, sometimes that to me, that's the best intro I've ever done ever on anything. I've never gotten goosebumps from an intro I've put together. But, you know, you take a killer song and you take that that sound. I mean, it's like you think about, OK, I, I know the story here already. Mm-hmm. So. And everybody already knows now what song they're about to hear, the talking about uh, the somewhere back in time. I know what y'all are about to hear, and it is incredible. I mean, I've listened. I listened to it a couple of days ago to to edit just to make sure there wasn't anything I needed to edit out. And I'm just like, this is it's Andrew. Just I, I've got another new nickname for him. I think uh, I think I've got him a headmaster, Andrew. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> But but knowing that the first line of the song, there goes the siren that warns of the air raid. And that's that siren is what they would have played back in the day if there if there was either an air raid or a potential air raid coming during that time. So how excited, Matt, how excited are you to hear this story now after just hearing the intro? I got goosebumps. I was telling you a second ago. It um it would have lent itself back in the day as a, a pretty awesome way. Like if you were to take away Churchill's speech, mm-hmm. and if I think back to Live After Death, so the mental picture that I had going in my head a few minutes ago when I listened to that, and I've got goosebumps again thinking about it now, was imagine if that show was starting and you had that siren going and yeah. there was floodlights. Like You know when the, the bombers would be flying overhead? And they used to have the spotlights trying to track them. Imagine that circling around the arena or the venues and stuff. I reckon that would be absolutely awesome. Right. I've always thought that that Churchill speech is kind of the perfect intro. Mm -hmm. But when I was listening to it, just, you know, as I've put it, you know, as it got put together and all that earlier, I thought this would be just as cool. And it's just the fact that, like I said, whenever it it caught, whenever – that, that that air raid siren was playing and I'm just kind of sitting here and because I had the file for Aces High on there and I didn't have it muted, it just started playing randomly and I was, I mean, it it kind of jolted me. I was like, holy crap. I mean, I got goosebumps. <laughs> it just, I was like, that is incredible and I tried to call you immediately. I was like, oh my God, Matt, you got to hear this. <laughs> it's incredible. But, uh, so I don't want to, I don't want to waffle on at all. I want to, I want to get right to this episode what you people are getting ready to hear is okay. The longest day was awesome. It was. The alchemist was really awesome. It was again. I appreciate both of those songs a lot more having listened to Andrew basically school me on it. But you know, when you hear 10 Emmy one Oh nines in the song, to me, that all that is is a lyric to a song. Mm-hmm. When you get done with this, it's not just going to be a lyric anymore. 
this song is going to, as much as, as, as awesome as this song is, it's going to get even better. So, so there goes the siren that warns of the air raid. Um, I don't have a sound for the guns sending flack, but, um, maybe, maybe this air, maybe this episode needs to get airborne. So out for the scramble, Matt, we've got to get airborne. Matt, you know what time it is now? Time for some audience participation. You got that right. (laughs) This week, as I flip the cassette over, because, you know, last week we heard Heaven Can Wait. I had to, in the meantime of flipping the cassette over, I thought, what better than to just, you know, let Andrew school us. Mm -hmm. So as I flip the cassette over, let's thank those that shared last week's Heaven Can Wait episode. First person that I'm going to thank is Joel Yanni Hebensberger in Guthrie, Oklahoma. That wasn't a real yawn. I am uh, caffeinated very well right now. That was uh, in memory of Joel, even though he's uh, still alive. I was texting him earlier, so he's still alive. (laughs) Alan Bell over in England. Kirsty Prince in your old stomping grounds of Perth, Australia. Jose Gonzalez from the round or flat earth, depending on what you believe. (laughs) The Liverpool Scouser, singular this time, Don McIntyre. Reggie Oz in Melbourne, Australia. Adrian Frederick Smith FAS, which is a fan page in Brazil. And I got to say this. I think it's really cool that somebody that that just somebody in South America is 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 like sharing this every week. I think that's so cool. It's just it blows my mind. You know, I guess even though South America just anywhere, it just blows my mind. And last but certainly not least, Matt, from Falkirk, Scotland, UK, the Sassanac himself is my buddy Andy. <laughs> All right. Are you ready to rock? I am ready to rock. Let's rock. Being that right now, this is in the middle of the caught somewhere in time series. So as you're hearing this, what I'm actually doing in the background is flipping over the cassette, the somewhere in time cassette. Heaven can wait just played. So now I got to flip it over and get to the loneliness of the long distance runner. (laughs) (laughs) So, Andrew, as we did last time, you're going to tell me the album, and I'm going Mm -hmm. to see if I can guess the song. We're going to see how many guesses it takes me. (laughs) Well, okay. Well, last time when we did The Alchemist, I would have been very disappointed if you'd got it first go. Uh, This time, Uh I'll be very disappointed if you don't get it first go. Okay. So, the album... Is Power Slave. Oh. Let me think. Let me think. Uh, do I hear sirens? You might hear an air raid siren. Is there an air raid going on? Uh, <laughs> is there a warning? Hmm. It could be. Let's see. We're not talking about any kind of rhyme. Um, not a, any kind of slave. We're not going... 
back to the village, I don't think. Um, you know, Andrew, I think I might be at a loss for words here, but I'm going to guess. Um, well, and it, it, it currently is, for me, two minutes till 7.43, but not two <laughs> minutes to midnight. So I guess I'm just going to have to... Um, I'm going to have to... Um, you know what? I've got a deck of cards here. Hold on one second. I'm going to grab one card out of this deck and see what it. Oh uh, yes. See, um, because in this in this um, in this deck of cards I have, Andrew, mm-hmm. the low card is a two, but you know yes. what? Ace is high. It is. <laughs> So that's I almost think, like you knew what was going to happen. <laughs> You've written that I, script. I shuffled all over the place for that. I was just looking <laughs> through this, and uh, I like doing the. I like trying to throw. Um, I, I didn't want to make you feel like we were duelists or anything. You know, <sighs> go, getting ready to go after one another. But um, but um, do you, did you feel like you were a slave to the power of Steve for a second? <laughs> I did. <laughs> okay. Well. Being that you and I are both a little ancient. Yes. We're not mariners, but we are ancient. So Ace is High. So the premise of Ace is High is the Battle of Britain, correct? Yes, of course. Yes. The Battle of Britain. And even though I know it's the Battle of Britain, I'm really Mm -hmm. not that educated on it. So I think you're going to help me out here today, aren't you? Uh, Hopefully. Yes. Yes. All right. Yeah. Well, while so, you are, while you, uh, if you will, if you will, mm-hmm. go ahead and start telling us about this. I'm going to pull the lyrics up on my computer, even though, Good. even though I know. Can I tell a quick Aces High story? Go on. The other day, my wife keeps saying she wants to kind of get in. You know, she's like, she's like, I want to try to. She's trying to be open minded. She's trying mm-hmm. to listen to a band by you know that I like. And whatever. So the other day I was wearing this new Iron Maiden shirt that I have. And on the front, it has up in the upper left corner, it says Iron Maiden and it's in camouflage. On the back, Mm -hmm. it's kind of got Eddie with the goggles on top of his head. And it says, live to fly, fly to live. And she goes, Uh she goes, what does that mean? Live to fly, fly to live. And I said, well, it's a, um, it's a song. It's, and so, She's like, well, you know what I want you to do? I want you to pull the lyrics up and pull the song up and let me listen to that song. And I'm like, okay. So I start immediately going, there goes the siren that warns the air raid. And I start kind of saying them to her. And I said, it's not just this little, um, you know, willy nilly, you know, oh, I met a girl. She's so pretty lyrics. And Mm -hmm. um, so I pulled up. my legacy of the beast show that I went to and I'm showing her because yeah. I'm like, listen to Sarah, listen to her screaming and all this kind of stuff. And I'm telling you, man, when that, when the lights go down and, and, and you hear that dun, 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 dun. And I mean, I'm even getting goosebumps talking about it right now, mm. but man, the goosebumps are just popping up on my arm so hard and they come on stage and they start, he starts singing and I'm just, Oh my gosh. I'm just like the, the, the surge of like energy that I could feel in my body just going through this song. I'm like, what an incredible song. <laughs> what an incredible song. It is. Yes. And, and a relatively simple song. If I, sh- if I could say that, mm-hmm. 
because the song itself uh, um, basically describes the process that a um, Spitfire pilot during the Battle of Britain would have gone through. You know, the siren going and the, the sound of the anti-aircraft guns and the scrambling, getting airborne. Uh, and then you go into the the dogfight that they're having with a uh, ME109. Mm-hmm. Or ME 109, so uh, which is the Messerschmitt German aircraft. So um, it's quite. I mean, when I went through the lyrics and started reading them, I thought to myself, it, it, you know, it's 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 very descriptive of the process of a battle, rather similar to the trooper, and it has that um, real gallop to it as well. Yeah. Um, so yeah. it's uh, it, it does remind me very much of the trooper, and it's an absolute classic. And I wanted to do a classic song from you know from the classic era rather. Because uh, I've done two from the more recent years, so yeah, yeah, this one jumped out at me, much right. like Bruce does when he comes on the stage at the beginning of the song. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. So, Andrew, take it away. Yes, okay. Well, as you rightly say, Battle of Britain. Um, now there are uh, official dates to the Battle of Britain uh, in 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 the UK, which is the 10th of July to the 31st of October, 1940. Although they're rather arbitrary dates. Um, I think those are the dates that uh, pilots would qualify for a Battle of Britain medal. Um, Although in Germany, they consider the Battle of Britain to have gone all the way through to May, 1941, um, which includes the Blitz, which was the uh, the mainly night bombing raids over over the whole of Britain. Uh, so yes, the Battle of Britain taking place in the skies above mainly southeast England in the summer of 1940. So I thought, where's the best place to start to tell that story? And obviously, uh, the best place to start is. Uh, the 1930 FA Cup final between Huddersfield Town and Arsenal. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> now, why on earth would I take you back to uh, the 26th of April 1930 to the Empire Stadium at Wembley? Well, this is before the Nazis came to power. This is before you know Hitler was still a, uh, a bit of a, um, a loose cannon and nobody took particularly seriously. Yeah. This day as i say huddersfield were playing arsenal huddersfield town with a big team in the 1920s arsenal had never won a trophy until this day and they became the big team of the 1930s so it's a pivotal game in the history of english football but Mm -hmm. on that day just after half time in the slate gray skies above wembley the graf zeppelin a large german airship appeared uh, it hovered around the stadium and it bowed its nose towards the royal box where King George V was sitting, ready to present the trophy to uh, the winning captain. Mm-hmm. And this was a sign. This was Germany saying, we're back. Uh, a Germany that had been devastated, not only beaten uh, in 1918, but humiliated the year after at the Treaty of Versailles. Uh, mm-hmm. Germany was a nation on its knees, and um, as part of that, they were not to have an air force. As part of that, they were not to allow 
to have any military stationed on the side of the country nearest France, the Rhineland. Uh, really a nation that um, was nothing like the massive, proud German empire that had existed up before the uh, First World War. So the Zeppelin was a sign of a resurgent Germany, growing in confidence. And of course, 10 years later, there'll mm. be German mm. planes above the skies of London. Can, can um, I ask a question? Yes. Okay, you said that Germany was not allowed to have an air force. Were they allowed to was so was this something that was allowed for them to have that? To, oh, it's no, yeah. So it's a passion of craft. That was perfectly okay. Uh but of course, that's not where it uh ended. Germany right. was secretly developing military capabilities in the air, I think in the late 1920s. Um, mm. but uh very quickly the rules of the Treaty of Versailles were bent and yeah, um, yeah. basically ignored um, by the time the, 19, the Nazis had come to power in the 1930s. Um, yeah, so, so in 1933 um, is when Adolf Hitler um, became Chancellor of Germany. When the, uh, the, now, to give the Nazis their proper title, it's the National Socialist German Workers' Party, or in German, the NSDAP. They were nicknamed, it was a derogatory nickname, I seem to recall, the uh, Nazi. And mm-hmm. um, uh, Hitler came to power in 1933. And then after the death of the of Hindenburg, German president, he assumed the role of dictator as Führer in 1934. So Germany has gone through this humiliation in 1919 but really the story of the beginning of the second world war which is what i'm going through i'm just building up and telling the story of why did the second world war happen it's it is this uh hangover from the first world war but really the story of of conflict in europe is one between this relationship between germany and france um, two nations that have gone at each other over the centuries. And you can go back. So before the First World War was the Franco-Prussian War, where Germany defeated France, and not only defeated France, but inside the Palace of Versailles, just outside Paris, uh, the German new German Empire was declared with a new German um, emperor. Before that, Germany had not existed. It was a series of smaller kingdoms, the hmm. most important kingdom being Prussia. Um, but you may have heard of Bavaria, the, the large um, hmm. region to the south of Germany. Um, and Germany had been broken up. It was once all part of this weird empire called the Holy Roman Empire. But that had been destroyed by Napoleon, um, okay. the French uh, emperor who came swept across Europe yeah, and destroyed the Holy Roma, Roman Empire in 1806. So you're going through this, going back and back and back. You're seeing this story of one side beating the other and then wanting the other to get their own back. And we end up throughout all these these couple of centuries of of warfare between these two nations. We end up in the 1930s, the Nazis coming to power in Germany. And 
they start to flex their muscles. They start, they move their military into the Rhineland. The French and the British did nothing. Hmm. They developed an air force. The French and the British did nothing. Yeah. And then um, they started to flex more muscles. And in 1938, um, they wanted to take part of uh, Czechoslovakia, the Sudetenland. And at a meeting between the British Prime Minister, the French, and uh, Adolf Hitler in Munich, they came to an agreement. And basically, the French, the British, let Germany take a big lump of Czechoslovakia. Uh, which country wasn't invited to the meeting? I'll let you guess. Britain. No, Czechoslovakia. Oh. <laughs> Yeah, I guess that would make sense. They weren't involved in the decision at all. Um, and so this is all part of the, you know, this is traditional European politics up until the Second World War, which was the big nations basically carving the place up. Yeah. So um, uh, it's very famous in Britain that uh, Neville Chamberlain comes back to Britain waving a piece of paper declaring peace in our time. Uh, and then, of course, um, little more than a year later, the nations at war and the, those right. that excuse Chamberlain's appeasement of Germany saying he was just buying time to let, let Britain build up its, um, its armaments ready mm -hmm. in readiness for war. So, um, we have a nation trying to, um, push itself further and further. And the next, uh, target is Poland. And on the 1st of September 1939, Germany invades Poland. Um, Britain and France give them an ultimatum to withdraw, uh, and that is ignored. And on the 3rd of September, Britain and France declare war on Germany, and the Second World War is off and running. Ooh. Now, what happens next? Well, Germany is concentrating itself on a war in Poland, okay, trying marching towards Warsaw and gaining ground there. Meanwhile, the British and the French are pretty much doing nothing. Um, this is a period that's, on the Western Front at least, is known as the Phony War, um, the late 1939, early 1940, where not a lot goes on. Um, now, in in doing the research for this, I, I've, I've particularly... Uh, listen to a lot of a uh, lot of stuff from a, a eminent World War II historian, James Holland, oh. and it, one of the fascinating things he's he is convinced that had France, in particular, attacked Germany in late 1939, the war could have been over really quickly. Hmm. Um, France had a superior army to Germany, and uh, Britain doesn't has traditionally never had a, a, a large standing army. Uh, Britain's strength was on the seas. Uh, the Royal Navy was by far and away the largest navy in the world. Not only did Britain have the largest uh, navy, it also commanded the vast majority of the world's merchant fleet as well. So Britain rule, did, at the time, rule the waves. Yeah. And France was very strong uh, had a very strong army and um, I say James Holland is convinced that they could have swept into Germany and 
had a decisive victory supported by the Royal Navy and supported by both nations' air forces. But, of course, it didn't happen. One of the reasons for that not happening is the political leadership in France was, was badly split. And... Basically, they, they sat back waiting to be attacked, maybe just like in 1914. Mm. Yeah. And waiting for a long attritional war, just like in the First World War. But, of course, that's not what happened. Um, um, by the time Germany in May 1940 uh, went west, they attacked the Low Countries and then France, um, they swept through. They um, completely um, obliterated the opposition. And this is um, almost part of their own problem. Part of their own downfall is that they were too good, too too quick in gaining control in the Low Countries and France. Mm-hmm. They had um, superior, they, they, their, the way the Germans operated was uh, they had uh, um, the, obviously the army on the ground, the Wehrmacht, and supported by the Luftwaffe, the Air Force. And they worked very well together in this sort of attack. And then they hit the sea. And that's when the problems start. So when we did um, The Longest Day, I might have mentioned, well, I did mention Dunkirk, mm-hmm. which is where their small, relatively small British expeditionary force was um, taken off uh, from Dunkirk, the port on the very, very northern tip of France, and taken back to Britain. Now, it was estimated at the time of Dunkirk, which began on the 26th of May 1940, that maybe, if they're lucky they'll get 40,000 men off the beaches in France and back to Britain. In the end, they managed to get 338,000. Wow. Which was, um, in terms of a defeat, it was a massive victory. (laughs) Yeah. It, It was a defeat. It was running away, but it was successfully done. And there was lots of, lots of ships, small and large, sailed back and forth across the channel to get the men off the beaches. And the, um, the beaches were well defended by the RAF, by the Spitfires. And this is the first time, really, that the Luftwaffe start to realise that they're up against quite a good enemy in the RAF. Right, right. Now, meanwhile, on the same day that Germany invaded the Netherlands and Belgium, the 10th of May 1940, Britain had a new prime minister. Neville Chamberlain, the prime minister that um, had gone to Hitler and got peace in our time, etc., had resigned. And um, the, there were two people that could have taken the job. One was uh, the Foreign Secretary, Lord Halifax, and the other was Winston Churchill. Uh, Halifax was a lot of people's favourite, but uh, many people thought that he would his policy would have been to try and 
gain some sort of peace with Germany, mm-hmm. to come to an accommodation that we didn't want yeah. to fight on. Right. Yeah. Churchill, however, was much more belligerent. He believed that the only answer was to fight, and that you couldn't you couldn't come to terms with Germany. You had to take them on. And not only had to take them on, we could take them on. We were capable. And um, Churchill um, was a very much a military man. He knew what he was talking about when, mm-hmm. when it came to the military. And it might be worth, because Ace is High, when it's been played live, we all know it. We all have seen the uh, the been to concert. Well, most of us have been to concerts and sort of seen video. The seen the the speech before right. the song starts. You hear those words: "We shall right. fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds, etc." That is a speech that Winston Churchill gave in the House of Commons on the fourth of June, nineteen forty. See a very famous speech. Mm. Um, However, those words that you're hearing, Churchill's actual words, are not the words from June 1940. They're from a much later recording in after the war in 1949. Mm. Um, what happened? What House of Commons wasn't um, recorded. Um, it was only recorded in in the book Hansard. Sure, and it was reported on in the papers and in the, on the radio in the evening. But you, they was no, there were no actual sound recordings or certainly no pictures from the house of commons in those days um so what churchill usually did with his speeches he would make the speech in the house of commons in the afternoon and then later on he would go and record the same speech so it could be broadcast to the nation but Ah. for what for whatever reason it wasn't done with this speech and um when you if, if, if people say they remember hearing it on the radio they're what they are remember they're misremembering what they heard they're they may have heard the speech being read out by a news reporter on the radio, but they wouldn't have heard Churchill's actual words until way after the war. So, so you're saying that, cause I always thought that that actual speech was made at Long Beach arena in 1985. You're saying <laughs> it, it wasn't, it, that's not where it was recorded. Apparently not. No, <laughs> I don't know exactly where it was recorded. I suspect it was somewhere um, maybe in the BBC in London, but sure. um, but uh, yeah, it was it was much later. On. That's an interesting fact. Yeah, and that that, that speech. So you, we're all familiar with it. Um, it says it ends with "We shall fight in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Never surrender." But, my, but the the speech carries on, and, and that's the speech part of the speech that I personally like the the best. It's it it says, and even if which. I do not for a moment believe this island or a large part of it was subjugated and starving. Then our empire beyond the seas, armed and guarded by the British fleet, would carry on the struggle until, in God's good time, the new world, with all its power and might, steps forth to the rescue and the liberation of the old. Oh, wow. And he, he whereas none of the other stuff, really happened you know we never fought on you know the landing grounds and the and the hills that we never had to do that but yeah that bit did happen the new world mainly of course in 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 the in the the name united states coming into the war uh the new world did come 
to the rescue and liberation of the old world of Europe, as well as, of course, you know, the countries like um, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, sure. South Africa and India and all the countries of the British Empire that were that were involved. We had, of course, yeah, yeah. the Americans coming to, to help and save us. So that's um, the fight on the the fight on the beaches speech, and which is which is um, really links in with Ace's side. Sir, I have myself full confidence that if all do their duty, if nothing is neglected, and if the best arrangements are made, as they are being made, we shall prove ourselves once more able to defend our island home, to ride out the storm of war and to outlive the menace of tyranny, if necessary, for years, if necessary, alone. At any rate, that is what we are going to try to do. That is the resolve of His Majesty's government, every man of them. That is the will of Parliament and the nation, the British Empire and the French Republic, linked together in their cause and in their need, will defend to the death their native soil, aiding each other like good comrades to the utmost of their strength. We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields. And in the streets, we shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And if, which I do not for a moment believe, this island or a large part of it were subjugated and starving, then our empire beyond the seas, armed and guarded by the British fleet, would carry on the struggle until in God's good time, the new world with all its power and might, steps forth to the rescue and the liberation of the old. It might be worth for a moment, whilst we're on the, that speech, is to have a little bit about Winston Churchill. Okay. Um, because he was not obvious um, through all the 1930s. Nobody would have taken, no, well, few people took him seriously. Churchill is a huge figure. He's he's even before the war, he had a life that was you know ten times what most people's lives are. He he yeah. fought in very you know in, in India, in in Africa, uh, in Cuba, uh, South Africa. He you know he was a, a cavalry charge at Omdurman. He was um, uh, in the uh, um, then in, as a politician, he was uh, in government in the First World War, famously resigned after the debacle at Gallipoli and went, not just resigned and sit on the back benches, he went to the trenches, to the Western Front for a, for a relatively short time, but he, he did his small bit uh, after he had to resign from government. Can't really imagine a, a government minister doing that these days. Um and then he came <laughs> back and he was back into government in the 1920s. And he had flip-flopped politically. He had gone from, he was a conservative to start with at the very beginning of the century. He joined the Liberal Party when the Liberal Party were in government in the First World War. And then back in the 1920s, 
he went back to the Conservative Party again and was in the Conservative government up until the end of the 1920s. And a politician that does all of that probably builds up a lot of, uh, I don't know, distrust. Sure. Um, he wasn't often taken seriously. And in the 1930s, he was a bit of a grumpy backbencher, moaning about this and that, particularly about British policy in India, which was moving towards Indian independence. Churchill was dead against Indian independence, so something that a lot of people do hold against him. Um, but on the flip side of that, he had worked uh, well with um, Irish Republicans for uh, Irish independence uh, from the United Kingdom. He became relatively good friends with Michael Collins, a leader of the, the then IRA. So, and so he's a <laughs> curious figure. And I, I, why I've always found him absolutely fascinating is, is that, that he, there are these contradictions. But in the 1930s, he was one of the main, if not only, voices in the British Parliament that was warning about the rise of Germany, about the rise of the Nazis. Uh, at that time, um, fascism hadn't got the connotations it has today for most people. Um, uh, Mussolini had been in charge in Italy for quite a while, and it was looked on relatively favourably by a lot of people. Even mm. the um, even uh, Roosevelt, when he came to power, sent yeah. people over to Italy to see how um, Mussolini was doing it because he seemed to be doing such a good job. So everybody was think well, uh, um, taking fascism as a serious political force, a new political force, something that was interesting, maybe had some good ideas. And Churchill was, uh, Churchill, I think, originally was, was thought was quite interesting what Mr. Lee might be doing. But I think, you know, he soon realized that this is, this is not going to be good. And certainly with the rise of the Nazis in Germany, he was dead against any appeasement, and he constantly sure. was carping from the back benches against any cooperation or any letting Germany off the hook. Um, he he was mm. he was very belligerent, which yeah. is why when war was, was declared, he was invited back into government with the coalition government. It was a government between both conservative and Labour opposition. Um, so Churchill is a fascinating character, and, and of course he he rides supreme over the Second World War, uh, partly because he wrote the. <laughs> soon as the war finished, he wrote the history of it. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, so he. Uh, so when you're when you're take when you're talking about Churchill, um, you, you mentioned that he's done. I'm gonna I'm gonna try to say this the right way. Sounds like you said he's done more in his life than some do in 10. Yeah. And you think that if he had to do go back, he'd probably go back and do it all over again? I've no doubt. He he was a larger than life character. And he's probably yeah. lived his he lived his life to the full, had no regrets. <laughs> Without doubt. Yeah. Okay. He, he, okay. He, I just he want was, to make sure. He was um um I say largely. I mean, recently people have uh, there's there's a there's, there's a lot of looking back at um, Churchill and uh, being a bit critical of of uh, maybe some of the things he may have said, and no doubt, sure, you know, he did say some things that would ring really badly in the ears of the 
people in the 21st century. Sure. sure. Um, but he's got, he has got the ace to play, and the ace is he defeated. Without him, I, I, there are historians will say, without him, um, we may not have had the victory that we had in the Second World War. He galvanized the country. And at a time when we were now looking at Britain, in Europe at least, on its own, because um, France had been defeated. Yeah. And that was really a blow to Churchill. Um, France, he, Churchill was a great um, um, Francophile. He loved France, and he yeah. truly believed in the French army and that, that France would be able to um, defend its territory um, yeah. vigorously. So it was a real shock that France fell. Not only did France fall, but um, there then was the major problem that France did have a large navy. And in, in Churchill's eyes went straight for the French ships and hoping that the French will come over to and stay with the, on the Allied side. Sure. Um, and it's 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 one of those really sad moments in in this part of the the war that that the French naval commanders at the time did not surrender their ships to the Royal Navy, mm. and the Royal Navy had orders to then sink the ships to yeah. to, to so that they did not fall into enemy hands, and so right, that right. that is I believe the last in this long. Hundreds of years of conflict between Britain and for previously England and France. That's the last um, military action between the two countries. That the, hmm. the, the ships were basically sunk in port, and um, a, an action that I don't think any of the men involved were, were particularly proud of. It was uh, a oh, dreadful sure. thing to have to do, but a necessary evil. You those that would support the action would would argue. Yeah. So. I mean, um, war, war is a time when a lot of things get done that may be for the good overall. It's one of those situations, kind of like when we talked about the longest day, when you talked about the training, the, the time, what, the summers, mm. you know, all the summers lost. And you talked about the men that were lost in that time. I mean, it's During not something training, you so want. Yes. Yeah. You don't want that to happen, but sometimes, in order to win the war, yeah, you, you know, there's losses Dirt. that have to be with, you know, withstood. Dirty work. Um, yeah. uh, let's, let's think of the lyrics to another song. We know deep down there's no other way. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we, it's um, it's 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 a horrid business, definitely. Sure. Sure. Um, so we're we're in May 1940, and. Just at the start of we go back to Dunkirk. Just at the start of uh, of the liberation of the British Expeditionary Force, the British Army from France, there was a massive argument in the British War Cabinet, which was five five men in the cabinet: um, Chamberlain, Churchill, um, Halifax, and uh, Clement Attlee, and uh, the name of another Labour minister that I. Have, have slips in my mind, but um, Arthur Greenwood, mm -hmm. there he is. And um, 
these they, there was a real standoff between whether Britain should sue for peace or stand alone. And of course, Halifax and Churchill were at loggerheads. <laughs> and apparently, um, things got to such a heated point that Halifax had to go out into the garden at Number Ten Downing Street to calm down. Churchill went out there to talk to him. Whatever was said, the two men came in and the policy was agreed. So the policy was that we cannot sue for peace. We cannot um, give in because yeah. going giving in at that point means that you are then subject to whatever Germany wishes, whatever Germany demands. And also, and this is the problem that Germany was facing, and I can take you to another speech, um, the finest hour speech given on the 18th of June, 1940, uh, amongst um, all that Churchill said, and the end of the speech is the, why it's called the finest hour speech, because he will, it goes, if the British Empire and its Commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will still say this was their finest hour, talking about mm. the Battle of Britain. But in that speech, he says this key line, Hitler knows that he will have to break us in this island or lose the war. And that's a definite statement. It's not saying he may lose the war. He might lose the war, probably. He will lose the war. Oh, wow. And this was the key point. Churchill knew it, and Churchill was saying Hitler knows it. He knows that Britain, still free, still fighting on in the West, is an annoyance to Germany when Germany, their target is to turn their guns eastwards towards the Soviet Union. What General Wagon has called the Battle of France is over. The Battle of Britain is about to begin. Upon this battle depends the survival of Christian civilization. Upon it depends our own British life and the long continuity of our institutions and our empire. The whole fury and might of the enemy must very soon be turned on us. Hitler knows that he will have to break us in this island or lose the war. If we can stand up to him, all Europe may be freed and the life of the world may move forward into broad, sunlit upland. But if we fail, then the whole world, including the United States, including all that we have known and cared for, will sink into the abyss of a new dark age made more sinister and perhaps more protracted by the lights of perverted science. Let us therefore brace ourselves to our duty. So bear ourselves that if the British Empire and its commonwealth last for a thousand years, Men will still say, this was their finest hour. The Germany had its eyes on uh, the Soviet Union. Soviet unions were massive resources, and that's what Germany needed. Germany wanted you know, the huge, vast grain fields of the Ukraine and all of that. Ger Soviet resources in abundance, and that's what 
Hitler wanted to get his hands on. Sure, sure. Um, but to, uh, to, to attack the Soviet Union, you do not want to have to be fighting on urea. You don't want to be fighting on two fronts. Right. Churchill knew this. He knew he held that ace card. And as long as Britain stayed in the war, as long as Britain, with a the massively strong Royal Navy and confident in its air force, um, Britain could withstand whatever Germany threw at it. So we have this question um, because there was a plan for German invasion of Britain called Operation Sea Line. And this is an interesting and intriguing question is could in the summer of 1940, could Germany have invaded? And it's probably, even if they tried, probably very unlikely they would have succeeded even if Germany had managed to gain some sort of mastery of the skies, it, it would never have had mastery of the seas. And even then, hmm. the pure, as we discussed with the longest day and D-Day, the logistics of getting enough men over a, even a relatively narrow stretch of sea in order to then um, uh, take and hold enemy territory, it, you know, it's Fast, what you need to, to yeah. consider, what you need to plan, what you need to have with you. Supplies and all there that, is, yeah. There is not a chance at that time that a German invasion would have been successful. And the Kriegsmarine, the, the German Navy, knew this, were extremely reluctant to get involved in any plan. The Luftwaffe still hadn't got command of the skies. So without that, no invasion could take place anyway. Um, so this was the first stage. This was the first key moment in deterring Germany from invading. But perhaps invasion wasn't the point. Maybe Germany didn't really want to invade Britain. It would have been a massive thing to have to do. What Germany wanted to do probably more than anything else was to pummel Britain into submission. So it didn't have to invade, just needed Britain to surrender and be like what happened in Southern France. There was what's called Vichy France. It was a, it was a so-called independent, um, but subservient, uh, country. It was, it was, it was not controlled directly by Germany, but it was effectively a fascist regime, uh, imposed upon the southern half of France, basically so the Germans didn't have to have any men there to control it. Something similar would have happened in Britain had Britain had to surrender. Britain would have become a subservient nation. All of that was to just relieve the pressure 
on the German Air Force and the German uh, Army so they could concentrate on the fight in the East. They hadn't yet invaded the Soviet Union. They were still friends, in inadvertent commas, with, <laughs> with the Soviets and with Stalin. Sure. But everybody, everybody knew that was the main game as far as Hitler was concerned. Yeah. So it, there's there's little likelihood that 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 a, an invasion was really seriously planned. But the Battle of Britain was this um, need to pummel Britain into submission. So when I said earlier about the Luftwaffe and the German army working very well together in sweeping across um, Western Europe, they were. And the problem was when they hit the water and then they had to attack Britain, but without an army. Because mm-hmm. the, um, the Luftwaffe were uh, what's known as a tactical air force. They acted as uh, support to ground operations. They were not a strategic air force. They did not have any clear plan of what they wanted to achieve when they attacked Britain. Um, and what they basically what they were doing, they were they were the bombers were coming over, supported by fighters. Um, the fighters that had done very well on their ground operations, but coming over to attack Britain, these fighters. Um, the Messerschmitt uh, uh, BF 109, which is what is referred to in the lyrics, is the it was it was unofficially known as the ME 109. Um, Heard of that? They, yes. <laughs> <laughs> now they were a brilliant aircraft. They were um, uh, it's the most produced fighter aircraft in history. Oh wow! Um, Thirty four thousand. Mm. were made between 1936 and 1945, and they were a superb aircraft. They had one small flaw, especially when attacking a target overseas, which is was their fuel capacity. Mm. Uh, and it meant that they couldn't support bombers for much more than 10 minutes over British territory. Oh, wow. So... This is this was their main problem. Can I ask a question? Yeah. Okay. Um, the small gas tanks, is that because, I mean, I don't know if you'll know this or not, but is that because of the size of the craft? It's just a very small craft and they can only, they only have obviously so much room to work with or it's just a flaw that they just, they didn't think about before they did it maybe. Ah well, uh, well, I I don't think that's what it was designed for. Um, now ah. I'm gonna you're gonna have to you're going to have to excuse me because my you might have guessed from our from previous conversations we've had my technical knowledge is not in t- not that. Oh, that's a, hey, if you don't, that's okay. Uh, <laughs> I just was wondering. I just no, but um, yeah, what what happens beneath the the bonnet of a car is a complete mystery to me. I you know, <laughs> turn the key of the engine and it starts and it might just as well be magic as far as I'm concerned. Um, I have no idea what goes on in, un, uh, inside the car engine. And, and so that's, that's the extent of my, my knowledge. We, that sort we of thing. have, more, so I'm gonna we have, have re- more in common than you think then. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to have to refer to my, my a smaller bit of notes here. Okay. It's, um, it, it was um, uh, a single engine fight. Um, fighter um, and it 
were had a limited fuel capacity when it was originally designed. Um, it resulted in only a 410 mile maximum range um, on hmm. internal fuel. So when they were arrived over a British target, they only had 10 minutes of flying time before having to turn for home, leaving sure. bombers undefended by fighter air escorts, which is the which is the big problem is that is that they were supporting the bombers, yeah, uh, and they were there to just fight off you know any any um, defending attacks on them. Um, what the Luftwaffe would have loved was would have been a massive air battle, the you know basically the Spitfires and the Hurricanes coming over the Channel to fight them. Um, that was fighting on basically on on German terms, and the command of the RAF. Um, were very, very clear that that was not what they should be doing. Despite there were some within RAF command that thought that's what they should be doing. Um, so Hugh Dowding, who was he- head of the RAF, uh, RAF Fighter Command, uh, he was absolutely clear that they were not to do that. They were to engage the enemy over land, over the skies of southern England. And mm-hmm. um, now, whilst we're talking about aircraft, we're, we might as well flip over to the other side because we have, of course, mentioned in the song, we have the Spitfire, which is the Supermarine Spitfire, mm-hmm. uh, which was pretty well matched to the ME-109. Now, there are um, um, uh, also the, uh, the Hawker Hurricane as well, which was um, um, an aircraft that was uh, mainly used against the bombers. Um but um, there was, uh, I have to refer to my notes, it's that the, the Spitfires had a, a Rolls-Royce Merlin engine, quite famous, mm. um, and, um, but they, their drawback was, and I'm reading this knowing absolutely not what it means, uh, a float-type carburetor which cut out under negative G-forces. Hmm. Um, whereas the direct fuel injected Daimler Benz DB601 engine with, in the 109s mm-hmm. gave them an advantage over the carburetor because they didn't cut out. Um, so that was well, <laughs> a small technical difference is that, as I understand it, you know, the, the, the spit, when you flew the Spitfire, uh, in a particular manoeuvre, the the because of the G force, the engine would cut out yeah. for a short time and before everything levelled out, and it would fire up again. Uh, yeah, I would have thought that would be a bit first time it happened for you as a pilot. It would be a bit disconcerting. <laughs> yeah. That did not that <laughs> yeah. did not happen in in the Messerschmitt uh, 109. Okay, um, so the Spitfire was. There, it was there to attack the uh, to the other fighter aircraft.
back to the song. The song was saying, particularly the second part of the song, where they've got, they've got airborne, and with you know the lyrics there, move in to fire at the mainstream of bombers. They're attacking the, 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 the stream of bombers that are coming off, and then they're, uh, they're spinning around. They're coming in behind them because they're moving to their blind sides and firing again. Now they're seeing these they're 10 ME-109s coming out of the sun, mm-hmm. and they have to turn and face them. And this is describing a bit of a dogfight between um, the Spitfires and the ME-109s. And this is what would have happened above the skies of um, southern England in the summer of 1940. And uh, one interesting thing from this song is that we don't really know what happens to the pilot of this Spitfire, do we? He, we don't know. He's, he's there. He's heading straight for him. He yeah. presses down his guns. Yeah, you kind of think that he probably yeah. – it was probably a um... – well, yeah, you know, you don't think about. It. Let me, let me. I have the lyrics in front of me. I'm gonna glance down at them just to, <laughs> just because of clarity. That way, I'm not. You know, sometimes you sing words for years and you don't maybe sing exactly. Yeah, that's it. Heading straight for them. I press down my guns. I like. You don't like to think it, but you assume that. Well, ten me one oh nine. Yeah. Okay. So so here's it here. Bandits at eight o'clock moving behind us. 10 ME-109s out of the sun. So this, I think this guy knows that he's done for and he doesn't care. Possibly. And he doesn't care. Heading straight for him, man. I'm pressing down my guns. Straight for him, pressing down his guns. You know, I'm I'm doing what... He might have got away. Yeah. Who knows? I think he's doing his part. So he's like... Because you know that you when you hear about... And I've only met two soldiers that I know of. Oh, I'm sure I've met more, but I've pro- I've only two that I know of, and it was my grandfather's that fought. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of them I never talked to about the war, uh, but the other one my that I did talk about, you know, you didn't really – he didn't talk – he wasn't a pilot. He was a uh, – I'm assuming he was a ground person because he helped liberate uh, – I believe it was Dachau. Um, mm-hmm. Yes, we we I know, about we, yeah, I know we've before, discussed yeah. it, yeah. but I think that's the one. He, I'm pretty sure that's the one, and I think based on the information that I told you, and you said mm-hmm. that's when they would have been there, at, and the Americans went to that. But yes, y- you don't ever get the sense when you hear about World War II, you know, people that fought in the war. You don't ever get the sense that they were worried about their own their selves. That they, they, they were more. No. They were more. Um. To, to quote part of an Iron Maiden album that I'm looking at the album cover of it right in front of me, that they were more, uh, no, not not an album, but a song title from it, but they were more about the greater good. Mm. They wanted, they were more concerned with the bigger mission in front of them as opposed to their own mortality, their own lives that were laying behind them. Even though you know that they still had to think that stuff, you never hear that. You always, it seemed like such a, united front on every side for for yes. for the good you know for the 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 british side and the american and the canadian and then australians and new zealand the good people the good ones that were there mm. Mm. yes indeed that's a lot for me to say when you asked one little simple question <laughs> so okay answering your question again i do think that this guy knew that his he was done for because he had bandits at eight o'clock moving in behind him 10 ME-109s in front of him, I'm assuming. The sun was in front of him, maybe. And he, you know, uh, okay. Do you think, yeah, he's, 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 
going straight for them and not not regardless of the consequences. Because you figure ascending, that means you're going up, you're not going down, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and turning. So he goes up, he turns, and man, he and he's just and he's heading straight for them. Mm. So. So maybe it's either I'm going to get them or I'm going to r- run right into them. I'm going to I'm going to get them one way or the other. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. But you never know, do you? You don't know. We'll you never might know. Have escaped. Yeah. But Bruce, you know what? Bruce is the one that's wearing the uh, pilot gear, so apparently he survived. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he's alright. And Eddie and Eddie yes. was in it. You know, Eddie was wearing the pilot gear on the on the picture. It, 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 so yeah, that's true. And yeah. then let's see yeah. what was next. Well, you know what? The next thing you know, he was a cyborg. So, <laughs> so, so I don't know. <laughs> Indeed. Yes. So, um, I, actually, I, well, well, what I'll do is I'll, I'll refer to a little book. Actually, a book that my mother was involved in putting together because it was a book oh. by the I think it's the Hurstmonceau Luncheon Club, which Hurstmonceau uh, is the village where I grew up okay. in uh, in in Sussex, and they put a book of memories of reminiscences of the of the Second World War. Ah, and I'll just read you a little a little bit from somebody that was uh, um, living in in Sussex. Okay, at that time, one night we were all sitting in the shelter. And Fred suddenly said, oh, goodness, I've put me trousers on backwards. <laughs> we did laugh at him. I don't think it caused a problem at the time. We had a bomb drop in one of the fields. That was a problem. Mm. The horse was in it, but the horse was unhurt. But it was found over the fence the next morning in another field. Oh wow! Whether it jumped over or was blown over by the blast, we never knew. The German bombers would get rid of any bombs left over on their way back to the coast. Once a boy was machine gunned as he ran down the street. Mm. He was killed. Sometimes, when Mother and I were out riding, we would ride, uh, we would hide in a hedge and watch the dogfights between the English and German planes going on overhead. Mm. It was a bit frightening, but when one of them had either been shot down or the enemy had flown away, we just continued on our way. Wow. So, <laughs> what a, there is a little bit of a, a, a spirit that it was happening. Just deal with it. We're going to live our um, lives regardless. Wow. Yes, yes. So that was that was a Joy Bryant um, uh, who lived, I think, actually near a place called Rye, which I know very well. Um, didn't, and, didn't you used to uh, work there in Rye? <laughs> uh, my grandmothers were both both lived in Rye. Okay, it's, it's, it's a lovely place. You should go one day. I hope to. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, another another one. This is uh, um, uh, a story from a place called Rush Lake Green. I remember very clearly one sun- Saturday afternoon during the Battle of Britain, probably September 1940, when I heard the terrible noise of a plane in trouble. It was screeching its way, crashing to earth. Oh, wow. It was a noise I shall never forget. The plane crashed between Bodle Street and Woods Corner. It was said the pilot was shot by a machine gun and crashed to his death. A memorial service is held for this airman each year at the church. A permanent memorial has been erected beside the road. And I know that memorial very well because I used to live just down the road from it uh, in um, Bodle Street. So mm. that's that the pilot um, was... <laughs> A Peter Guerin Crofts, aged twenty-two, wow. um, 
And the memorial reads, in grateful remembrance of Peter Gering Croft, flying officer, Royal Air Force, who near this spot gave his life in the Battle of Britain on the 28th of September 1940, and is one of the few to whom so many owe so much. Wow. Um, which is, that last line, of course, is a reference to another speech by Winston Churchill, um, which I'll read for you, although it's, uh, um, it's quite short. Okay. Um, the gratitude of every home in our island, in our empire, and indeed throughout the world, except in the abodes of the guilty, goes out to the British airmen who, undaunted by odds, unwearied in their constant challenge and mortal danger, are turning the tide of the world war by their prowess and by their devotion. Never in the field of human conflict was so much owed by so many to so few. And the pilots of the Battle of Britain are known as the few, um, and this um, is uh, it, it, it. It sort of is. is yeah. The Nova has so much been owed by so many, so few, so few. Actually, physics pilots. The, the numbers compared to um, you know, a, a land battle, yeah, are relatively few. Sure, um, involved in this, but it was so critical. And this was. Um, I should have mentioned this earlier. The Battle of Britain was the world's first major air battle that there had not been anything quite like the battle of Britain before. And there's not been anything like it since it's, it's still the biggest um, air battle in history, pure air battle. Um, There had been action in the Spanish civil war um, where the Germans practiced aiding the fascists in the Spanish Civil War in, I think, 1937, very famous event called Guernica, where um, um, a, there was the whole city was devastated. Um, but nothing quite like the Battle of Britain had occurred before. And um, just I'll just pick up on one phrase from that speech, which was um, saying that uh, with talking about the British airmen, because I think it's important to say that it wasn't just British airmen. Uh, you had a, uh, a very good interview with a gentleman by the name of Blaze Bailey relatively recently, I believe, who had a new album. Yes. Has had a new album out. Yes. And one song in that, which he talked about, is 303. 303, yeah. Uh, do you remember what that refers to? It's um, it's some fighters from a country that was lost or taken over, and they're coming over and they're fighting with somebody else, and they're really they get there. I know he, I know there's a line where he says, uh, "They fight for revenge in the sky." I think is the way it says it. Mm, yep, yep. So, um, uh, the three hundred three squadron of the RAF was manned by uh, Polish fighters, mm-hmm. and. Of the uh, within the whole of the um, Battle of Britain, there were um, uh, fighters from Poland mainly, about 145, mm-hmm. but also from countries like New Zealand, Canada, Czechoslovakia, Belgium, Australia, South Africa, the Free French, the Republic of Ireland, 
the United States and uh, countries within the uh, British Empire, like Southern Rhodesia, Barbados, Jamaica, Newfoundland, which was separate from Canada at the time, and Northern Rhodesia. So um, there were all these foreign fighters um, with the RAF at the time, mm-hmm. uh, men that would have came come over um, either because they had nowhere else to go, like the Poles, or from countries like the United States or the Republic of Ireland that were at the time neutral, but yeah. men felt that they they should come and fight. Sure. Um, so it's and the, the famous squadron is the three hundred three, and the, they're famous because they were the most effective of all the squadrons in the RAF in the Battle of Britain. They had the most uh, victories. And um, there is a, a question of whether, well, you know, I think the, that bit you you uh, referred to the lyrics of the song yeah. is that, that that they had nothing to lose. They their country had been um, uh, overrun. They probably had absolutely no idea what had happened to their families. Yeah, and that was it. They just. All they could do was fight and fight, and you can imagine that they were very, very angry men, and that they wanted to get revenge on on the Germans. So you can you can feel that they would have been really up for the battle, sure. But also that they they flew um, the Hawker Hurricane, which were um, mainly attack bombers, and there is a simple fact that. Bombers are a bigger target than fighters, yeah. So, yeah, you could say that that they had that advantage. But even so, they weren't the only ones um, um, manning Hawker Hurricanes. They performed ex- brilliantly. And when the Poles first came over to to Britain at the, at the very start of the Battle of Britain, they there was a lot of um, uncertainty about them. They thought that you know, are these blokes really up to the job? And very quickly, um, the uh, higher echelon within the RAF realized, yes, they are. They, they were given the, the smaller tasks, the menial jobs, if you like, within within the Air Force. And But they, because of, they were proved themselves very, very capable, they were quickly promoted and it was insisted that they should be treated exactly the same as the British Airmen. And um, they got... Um, their own fighter squadrons and performed absolutely brilliantly. Uh, and uh, there is, I think, a memorial in London to all the foreign fighters in the, in the Battle of Britain. Um, and mm. the Poles were the largest and the most famous. There was a small possibility, though there was concern that should a Polish fighter be um, shot down, that they were that then on in they will be a foreigner in England that they might be treated with some sort of suspicion because they couldn't yeah. speak English very well. But um, apparently that, that didn't happen in very many cases. Uh, if, if anything, they were um, very, very popular indeed with, uh, with uh, the British people because of uh, the, the superb job that they did. Yeah. Yeah. So another aspect of um the Battle of Britain that perhaps isn't spoken about very much is um, I was listening to something the other day when we're doing the research and um, 
they were talking about a pilot that would say, um, well, he was asked this question, um, did you ever um, fear that, that you wouldn't be able to get up and fight because there weren't enough aircraft available to you because too many had been you know, shot down or damaged or whatever? And he said, oh, no, no, no. When we woke up in the morning, we had a full complement of aircraft. We had absolutely no idea how they got there, but every <laughs> morning a full complement of aircraft and we had never had a problem. Now, I think he may have been a little bit disingenuous there because he probably did know how they got there. there was uh, an organisation called the Air Transport Auxiliary. And this was a fine body of people that moved aircraft all over Britain during the war from you know, new aircraft that had been freshly made and needed to go out to an airfield mm-hmm. or uh, aircraft that had been repaired or whatever, or just aircraft that for whatever strategic purposes needed to be moved around. Mm-hmm. And the people within the air transport auxiliary were uh people that were too old considered too old to fight or men that had suffered some sort of injury maybe blinded in one eye or or a physical injury in in battle yeah uh and um female pilots as well uh who became very famous and indeed quite popular uh and these pilots, I mean, think about, uh, I, I was listened to an interview years ago of one of these women, now sadly passed away, who described the fact that she had to fly all sorts of different aircraft all over the country, uh, from Spitfires and Hurricanes to Lancasters, the large bombers, um, and she had to fly them on her own. When she was in a large bomber, she wasn't, Supported. She didn't have a co-pilot. She didn't have a navigator or anything like that. Oh, wow. It was just her and the aircraft. God. And she she described when she she landed in this uh, a, a Lancaster bomber say uh, landed at an airfield and got out of the aircraft by herself. The the by herself. The male the male pilots were just standing there watching, waiting for the rest of the crew to come out, and she, <laughs> slowly dawning on her dawning on them that she was on her own wow. she, she had flown this craft that takes three or four men to fly sure. she'd done it all by herself um so of course women weren't allowed in the front line at the time uh so this was a way that that many young women could do their bit for 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 the war effort and it wasn't a safe thing to do either you were in oh, a yeah. military aircraft in the skies above britain during a war, yeah. you if you happened to be very unlucky and come across enemy aircraft, you would have been a target. Sure, sure. And, and some were. And, of course, the, all the other things that could happen, you hit, you know, fog or have a, a bad landing or whatever. It was, it was a dangerous thing to have to do. But many did it, and many did it um, 
Uh, very well indeed. And of course, that was all part of the success of, of the battle. That was the fact that a pilot could wake up in the morning and see that there's a full complement of Spitfires ready to go up if needed. Yeah. Um, there was never the problem that you didn't have enough aircraft. And and that's one of the key reasons, one of those key parts of the jigsaw that that, that came that gave uh, the RAF the advantage in in the battle. Um, and touching on uh, airmen that had been injured, yeah, um, there was in uh, the the Royal Victoria Hospital at the place called East Grinstead in Sussex. Um, there was a surgeon by the name of Sir Archibald McKindo, and he was a pioneer of plastic surgery. And so when you're in an aircraft and you get shot at, one of the worst things that could happen to you is that your your cockpit is in flames. And you're trapped in that you have to get out. And you get out, mm-hmm. but however you're managing to do it, you've managed to get out. But you can imagine once, if you're able to get safely to back to Earth, that you are severely burned, you're particularly your face. And because that's yeah. largely the part of your body that's exposed. Sure. And what they did at, at, uh, at the Royal Victoria Hospital, he, this surgeon, um, McKindo, pioneered um, plastic surgery. And he was able to treat uh, very badly burned aircrew and they, the, the air crew at the hospital formed what was called the Giddy Pig Club mm-hmm. uh, in 1941 because they felt they were basically being experimented on, which is effectively what they were. Sure. They were, it was a, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was needs must. And, um, and the hospital still today is a leading facility in the treatment of burns. But one of the things that caught my eye um, is that apparently in the wards, they were, they had barrels of pale ale set up uh, to help the pilots with re- rehydration after you've been badly burnt you mm-hmm. very dehydrated so this the, the beer there was to help with the rehydration and also to encourage an informal happy atmosphere sure uh and you know i mean you 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 you're you've been devastated you have very serious injuries and yeah. you're probably in a hell of a lot of pain oh yeah i think I think a pint is is not a not out of the question really <laughs> to, yeah. to help ease um, ease everything. Uh, in um, 1947, Archibald McKindo said this about the Guinea Pig Club. It has been described as the most exclusive club in the world, but the entrance fee is something most men would not care to pay. Sure, and the conditions of membership are arduous in the extreme. Mm. So that uh, there was, um, um, I think they they were carrying on the guinea pig club well into the 1990s, I think. Oh, wow. Um, the, the members, yeah. They, they, so men, some of these men survived a very, very long time thanks to the work of Sir Archibald McKindo. Wow. So... Um, what happened with the Battle of Britain? Well, we have um, the Germans were that the Luftwaffe were led by a or the head of the Luftwaffe by a gentleman by the name of Hermann Goering. 
an absolute larger-than-life character. And he was a, a, a fighter ace himself in the First World War. But he was... Um, uh, he, uh, what's the word? Um, perhaps um, <laughs> very much he was the man. He was the person. He gave the orders. He was in charge. Uh, he was opposite Sir Hugh Dowding, the head of fighter command, and he was a man that was uh, that that. And this is a story that I think goes back to what we were talking about in the longest day. That that the German command system was very strict and and very much you know you say what you know you do what i say sure whereas in the the british uh under sir hugh dowding was developing uh he was he just let his he developed the strategy but said you get on with it i trust you you can you do what you see fit yeah and one of the things that 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 um was developed under the under uh, fighter command was the air effect the air defense system the radar system and all around there were these small radio radar stations and the germans couldn't uh, germans had developed radar themselves they had a very sophisticated radar system whereas the british radar system was very basic almost amateurish mm-hmm. um and the radar only worked over the sea. Once the the enemy aircraft had come over land, the radar was useless. And at that point, um, we have what I think Winston Churchill termed uh, 30,000 pairs of the Mark I eyeball to uh, basically people looking into the skies and seeing where they can see the aircraft and estimating how high they are and yeah. et cetera, and the direction of, of where they're going. Anyway, this was all in a network, an intricate network of information being fed back to fighter command, all these radio stations, all the spotters, everything was being fed back and the communications were in a network. So if, um, for whatever reason, there was a break in the communications in one direction. The message would get through in another, another way. Um, and the, it was the gathering of information by fighter command that was one of the key things. And when you come back to the strategy, in inverted commas, that, that the Luftwaffe under Göring were operating, their strategy was well, nobody, I don't think anybody really knew because it was different targets, different times. Mm-hmm. Were they targeting the radar stations? Were they targeting the airfields? Were they targeting the ports and the Navy? Were they targeting factories? What were they going for? Uh, the Germans never had a clear strategy. Um, I mm-hmm. come back to um, the historian um, uh, James Holland. He, he believes the Germans should have just absolutely pummeled and bombed uh, Kent, all the way, just just keep hammering and hammering and hammering in one concentrated spot, and seeing if that got you anywhere with uh, a surrender. Because if you kept pummeling at the same spot, sure. you would you would maybe just push people in over the edge into submission. Uh, but they didn't do that. That was German tactics on the ground. German tactics on the ground was a short shot push to to break through. 
but uh, on um, in the air they had no clear strategy they had no clear uh, target uh, uh, another historian whose name I can't remember when we're talking about what the Germans should have done in order to win the Battle of Britain believes they should have clearly targeted power stations because knocking out power would have knocked yeah. out communications, would have knocked out industry. It was a clear and obvious target, but it's not something that the the Germans had as part of their strategy. So you end up with a, a very well-organized system, uh, system in Britain and um, so well-organized that they were able to deal with even airfields being heavily bombed of of the 138 airfields, only one was put out of action for more than 48 hours during oh, wow. the Battle of Britain. Um, and it, that shows both the organization on the British side and the lack of organization on the German side. And I, and I might say this, um, I said this to my wife earlier, because she's half German. <laughs> <laughs> so being, being married into a, a German fa- family, um, uh, it's it is a little bit of a myth, I think. This 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 the Germans being a very well organised people because <laughs> <laughs> I I don't think I've seen it. <laughs> That's funny. My own personal experience, but anyway, um, so and and the the British airfields are were largely fields, just grass. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the big advantages of having just a big lump of grass to take off and land on is that you didn't it didn't matter where the runway was yeah so if there was a bomb crater somewhere then you just fly around it wait wait did you say um, did you say that was the german airfields or the or the british the british airfields okay you just, said i thought you said german okay sorry oh am i sorry the, the british airfields uh, the, the yeah they were they were just grass okay gotcha uh and um so you could fly uh, in and out, wherever. And, and one pilot I listened to, he just said, "Well, when you know, uh, you know, we were we we f- took off, and then we saw behind us the the, the airfield being bombed, and we thought, well, what are we going to do now?' And then <laughs> when the, all the all the fog cleared, um, they just we just came down and and just avoided the holes. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, and then of course, you know, there, there will be uh, people coming around and filling in any potholes sure, uh, sure. afterwards. So it was. It really was a, 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 a simple but very well run organisation. And sometimes, you know, simplicity does is 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 better than having a nice spanking, sure, brilliant runway that, that is an easy target. Oh yeah. Uh, so um, we come to uh, the, the, the 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 basically the the big push that that. Um, uh, the Luftwaffe um, uh, to try and break through the the British lines. They, there was a, a a day on the 13th of August 1940, what they coined Eagle Day, mm-hmm. and it was the start of a um, short concerted attack that uh, Goering um, believe would basically knock the RAF out of the war within a matter of days. Yeah. Um, and it was a complete failure, of course. Um, they just never had the the numbers. Um, there is a basic rule 
military rule of thumb that when you're attacking a defensive position that you need at least a three to one advantage and at no point during the battle of britain did germany have anywhere close to a three to one advantage Hmm. it was largely one to one wow it was it was a pretty even contest even though there is this myth um surrounding the battle of britain mainly maybe based around this idea of the few that 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 we were a small british small air force up against this mighty german luftwaffe yeah and um the truth is that it was it was pretty evenly matched. Hmm. And in fact, by the end of the Battle of Britain, the British machine had pumped out aircraft after aircraft after aircraft because the Germans have failed to deal to, to destroy the manufacturing um, the factories where these planes were <laughs> being made. The the strategy had been to break up the, the, the they were being made at various different places so they weren't concentrated in one place that could be an easy target. Yeah. And uh, the Germans were just struggling to to with with still with dealing with Poland, uh, struggling to bring enough men and enough aircraft into it. In fact, um, I think the the German pilots were being expected to fly not you know sometimes twice maybe more times a day that they were just being thrown back up into the air back up into the air. Indeed, there is a story that I'd read that. Um, the 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 when one German Battle of Britain um, veteran met another, they joked about showing each other their appendectomy scar because mm. um, feigning appendicitis was basically the only way to get out of being thrown up into the air constantly in this in this pointless battle. of September 1940, which is um, known today as Battle of Britain Day. It's one of the largest aerial assaults on Britain. And even then, that, that, you know, that didn't break the RAF um, hmm. by, the, uh, by, by the end of October. It was effectively all over for, for this. Um, the German tactic then moved to massive bombing raids. And we have the beginning of the Blitz. And uh, the, when not just this was not just over the southeast uh, and London, this was across Britain. So those cities from you know Aberdeen, Belfast, Liverpool, Coventry, Newcastle, uh, South Wales, all across the whole country, they were being bombed constantly by by the um, by the Luftwaffe. But um, effectively. That was it. That was Germany it. had lost, and at the end of the war, um, a senior German 
officer was being interrogated by Soviet interrogators. Okay. And he was asked, what was, what was the moment? What, when did you realize that you were going to lose? Thinking that he would say Stalingrad when, when the Russians managed to turn the Germans around in their attack of the Soviet Union. Right. And the German officer said, without hesitation, it was the Battle of Britain. Wow. As soon as he – the Battle of Britain was won by the British, just like in um, Churchill's speech, mm-hmm. he, he knew that he had to break – us in this island or lose the war. So and that, from that, and that was early onwards, on. That's very, I mean, it's, you know, 1940, 1940. Yeah. The writing was on the wall for Germany. Wow. It was just then a matter of time. Golly. It, and of course, once the battle of Britain had taken place, once the blitz had been, was, was through into 1941, um, Hitler had turned his eye, he, turned his eyes eastwards he wanted to invade the soviet union and then of course you know the ma- a massive error of you know tactical error was was to go and invade the soviet union without dealing with britain first and he failed to deal with britain yeah he went for the soviet union anyway and of course the, you know, the rest is history um we know that he failed him on both fronts well thankful you and, know thankfully he wasn't I mean, as far as a military person, I don't, I don't know. A, I mean, I've never read a lot about Hitler, but obviously he had some smarts, but thankfully he wasn't, you know, he didn't like you, you know how we, I think you talked about this on the longest day episode that all decisions kind of had to go through him. Like it, it wasn't, yes. they couldn't make a decision. Like, like you said, like about the British ones, they, he had, you know, there they were your leaders, you know, and, and, you know, there's obviously, yep. There's a top guy, then there's people below him and people below them and people below them. And they allowed their they allowed their people to make decisions based on we trust you. They you're did. here for a reason. Whereas Hitler was a I guess a control freak for a lack of a better word. Yes, well and, and that that when you when you wheel back to Dunkirk, um, there is a big question is why on earth didn't the Germans just pummel? The British forces, when they were stuck in this corner in, in <clears throat> northern France, why didn't they go for it? And that goes back to uh, an argument between two ger- senior German commanders, which Hitler basically went and said, you are not to override your orders. Your orders are to stay put and not to attack. Mm. And yeah. it let 300,000 enemy soldiers free. Just because of making a point, making a point that yeah. you should not override the commander in that, even if the commander is wrong. Even if, yeah, you even should, if you know, you should, yeah. <laughs> yep. If you know victory is there in your grasp, yeah, you're not to override him. And, and he countermanded that, that order. Um, and, you know, thankfully he did. Yeah. yeah. And, and Hitler was. Maybe a great orator, etc., but I don't think he was a great military commander by any means. He was he was no Napoleon, yeah. Um, and um, so I, I just thought I would um, finish off with a little bit more uh, from um, 
Churchill. Okay. Um, on the 30th of December, 1941, he gave a speech to the Canadian Parliament in Ottawa. And I'll just read it for you. Okay. The French government had, at their own suggestion, solemnly bound themselves with us not to make a separate peace. It was their duty and it was also their interest to go to North Africa, where they would have been at the head of the French Empire. In Africa, with our aid, they would have had overwhelming sea power. They would have had the recognition of the United States and the use of all the gold they had lodged beyond the seas. If they had done this, Italy might have been driven out of the war before the end of 1940, and France would have held her place as a nation in the councils of the Allies and at the conference table of the victors. But their generals misled them. When I warned them that Britain would fight on alone whatever they did, their generals told their prime minister and his divided cabinet, in three weeks, England will have her neck wrung like a chicken. <laughs> Some chicken, <laughs> some neck. <laughs> to our absolute rousing applause and cheers from the uh, MPs in the Canadian Parliament. Sure. And to close, I'll actually close with a speech given by Clement Attlee, who was the, the Deputy Prime Minister, uh, a, re a rival, because he was on the Labour side, and a friend. He succeeded Churchill when he defeated Churchill in the 1945 landslide for the Labour Party in the general election. Um, but Attlee gave this speech in 1965, after the death of Sir Winston Churchill. Okay. And he said, I think of him also as supremely conscious of history. His mind went back not only to his great ancestor, Marlborough, the Duke of Marlborough, but through the years of English history, he saw himself and saw our nation at that time playing a part not unworthy of our ancestors, not unworthy of the men who defeated the Armada, and not unworthy of the men who defeated Napoleon. He saw himself there as an instrument, as an instrument for what? For freedom, for human life against tyranny. None of us can ever forget how, through all those long years, he now and again spoke exactly the phrase that crystallized the feelings of the nation. My lords, we have lost the greatest Englishman of our time, I think the greatest citizen of the world of our time. Mm, wow. And that's a tribute from his rival. Yeah. So... That's the Battle of Britain. I hope I've given you a, a good overview of of the Battle of Britain and of um, the man whose voice has started many an Iron Maiden concert, Sir Winston Churchill. Yeah. Um, based on the feedback that I've received from The Alchemist and from The Longest Day and being privy to having being able you know to having these conversations with you and getting to hear it well before anybody else does i i can assure you people are going to love this this is going to be awesome <laughs> this is going to be awesome oh, i hope so 
Yeah, and do you mm. want to? I know you like to give. Sometimes you like to give a. Uh, ah, I should do. Sorry, oh, mark me down. Yes. <laughs> uh, now, um, I've I've referred to the historian James Holland. I've listened to uh, a number of different podcasts which he has appeared on and indeed hosted. Um, there are uh, a couple that I would mention. Just because not only do they deal with this, but many other subjects, but there is one that he presents with the um, uh, comedian Al Murray, which is called um, uh, We Have Ways of Making You Talk, I think it is, Mm -hmm. um, which they deal with a lot of Second World War history in that. And also there is another podcast that I've listened to and got a lot of uh, information from, which is... um, uh the and the rest is history podcast which is hosted by james holland's brother (laughs) (laughs) um another holland whose name escapes me but um i should have written that down but they are two very good podcasts that uh that i would uh, i would recommend anybody that's interested in any historical um um subject to refer to and of course i referred to some quotes from um uh, the the book of the Hurstman Sioux Luncheon Club. <laughs> that was I thought that so, was very interesting. You know, I mean, yeah, because you think about, I mean, you said that there was never another battle like the Battle of Britain ever, before or after, and you think, I mean, just thinking about the, have you ever seen the movie that came out? It was kind of cheesy. Uh, it was the movie called Pearl Harbor. Came out a bunch of years ago. I think I have. I think I have, but a long time. Yeah, yeah. Ago, I think, I wasn't it? Yeah. I don't remember much about it, but the one scene I always remember in it is like there's people outside playing or whatever, kids and whatever, and these Japanese planes are flying over, and they're just standing there watching them, and it's like mm. they're kind of like mm. you know what what is going on here, and you know when it's supposed to be you know obviously it's about the bombing of Pearl Harbor, so they're seeing them as they're coming over the you know, over the horizon or wherever. And you can only imagine, like when you're talking about that, I'm thinking of these people sitting there, like you said, they're, you know, we're watching the battle in the sky and we see this and we see that. And just, and then when it's gone, we keep on going about our way. And it's like, just imagine living your life with all of that turmoil. I mean, it's. Yep. Because you had to get on with everyday life. Yeah. Regardless. You had, I mean, yeah, it's kind of like, you know, not, not in the same way, but. It's like what's going on in our world now. Regardless of what's going on, you still have to live your life. Yes, well, to the best you, of your ability. You see, you, you see pictures um, from the London Blitz uh, of uh, you know the morning after a massive bombing raid, as the you know, the roads have got massive, uh, great big bomb craters, craters and things, buildings yeah. that are in piles of rubble, and people are stepping through the rubble and avoiding the craters on their way to work. Yeah, God, um, incredible. Yes. Amazing it's, time, it's... weird time. <laughs> Certainly. Yes. Well, we think we've got it bad now. <laughs> exactly. Well, Andrew, I have to say, and I, and I, I say this every time to you, uh, A, first of all, thank you for that email that said, hey, I have an idea. Let's do this. Phenomenal. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, like I'm pretty sure I've responded. That's probably the quickest response you ever got from an email from me, too. <laughs> Because I was like, holy crap. And I, I'll tell you this. I was talking to Matt the other day. And I mm-hmm. said, this is a little 
Well, you know what? I talked to Matt and I talked to Andy and I told both of them the same thing. I said, whenever we started doing this immediately in my mind, I was like, I, I told them, I said, I am so glad that Andrew and me are doing this before some other, someone else scooped him up and started doing this with him. Cause this is so great. It's so awesome. It's uh, yeah, I, I could, I could, the, the gem of the idea actually is quite a few, quite a few years old. Um, the um, I thought I remember going through YouTube videos and looking at the comments underneath a video of the trooper. Yeah. And all these comments saying, oh, it's about the American Civil War. It's about, uh, you know, the American War of Independence. So it's about this, it's yeah. about that. And I was thinking, uh, it's no. clearly not. <laughs> ah, that's awesome. <laughs> There's Russian guns in the lyrics. Yeah. Um, and um, thinking, no, I don't know. It, it, uh, I, is it just me or is it, is it not obvious? I, it, so that was, if you like, that, that memory was there when you st- – you are you were pon- you know pondering you know is there anything I could contribute and I just thought well I don't know this this is this might be a I don't know if this is really a good idea so, yeah you know, but I, so I oh, thought I love I'd it. say say what I was thinking and, and wait for you to say no that's not really for me I, I think that's a rubbish idea no, I I told him, and, I told uh, both of those guys too I said <laughs> I said you know what's going to happen one day you know who's going to you know who's what's going to happen is he's going to get plucked away from me by like Iron Maiden themselves they're going to be like. Hey, this is this is what we would, and and I think when I said to, I said to one of those guys, you know, or they'll take the idea and come up with their own little series of this and that, and I said, you know, maybe they'll find someone who's a little more well spoken or something. And I'm pretty sure it, I was mad. I was talking. He said, I don't know that they'll find someone that would be able to present that better than the way he's presenting it. And I was like, wow. I just thought, man, this is awesome. But I I love it. Um, <clears throat> How many more World War II songs does Iron Maiden have? Well, I, uh, you, the one that could that ties in very nicely with this one, of course, is um, uh, Tail Gunner, which is okay. all about bombing raids, which uh, who knows, we might do one day. One day. Um, but, but maybe next time we'll, we'll do something completely different from, from Second World War stuff. Sure, sure. But yeah, mm. but but again, I want to say thank you, thank you very much for your time because I know that you put a lot of time into, like you said, just just sitting there and listening to a podcast. You know, no podcasts aren't just you know short little well, ditties you, usually. No, and, and my problem is I listen to my, most of them whilst I'm driving, and I can't really make notes mm. whilst I'm driving. So yeah. a, a lot of it is kept up in my head, and then I'm hurriedly yeah in the in the few days before I talk to you, I'm scribbling. <laughs> That's funny. That's so funny. <laughs> But seriously, thank you very much. I and I know I'm not alone in that because we all love it. Everyone, I mean, I have never, I haven't gotten a bad word from anybody. Everyone's like, "Oh my gosh, this is incredible!" So, thank you very much, sir. That's quite all right. Thoroughly enjoyed it. And um, have yourself a good rest of your evening. And cheers. I'm, I'm going to bed shortly. <laughs> thank you, sir. <laughs> There you have it.
I hope that you found that as incredible as I did. I've been explaining to Matt how awesome this episode is. He 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 said before we recorded this, he says, dude, I'm really, really looking forward to this. I'm like, you're really looking forward to it, but you don't even know the half of it, dude. It is it's really to me, as good as the longest day was, as good as the alchemist was, I think this one blows both of them away. It's just and I don't know if it blows the longest day away, but it's World War II, and it's it's just super. There's a lot of stuff that ties in that we dis, that, that that gets discussed in there. So, as everyone has already heard by now, only person that hasn't heard it, well, only person that has heard it is me and Andrew. So, but I'm sure you loved it. Make sure, and everybody, I don't usually ask people on the episode if you're only gonna share one episode ever, share this episode. This is worth getting out, and this is worth people hearing. This is an incredible, it's, it's just incredible. I'm so, I just told Matt Amigo, I'm so thankful that I found Andrew and Andrew brought this idea in for these episodes. So awesome. So awesome. So Matt, again, how excited are you to hear this episode? You have no idea because like I was saying <laughs> before, I, I like uh, all the historical stuff, the World War, whether it's World War One or World War Two. And yeah. watching the movies and things. So just thinking about yeah. what Andrew's done in the past, the longest day especially, yeah, he's on point. And I'm sure he will be again with this one. So I'm really looking forward to it. And just think, the next time you hear yourself saying this, you will have already heard it. <laughs> It'll be so, a thing of beauty. Yes. So on behalf of Lord Andrew of Sussex, on behalf of myself, on behalf of Matt... From Iron Maiden, from Eddie, and from the boys. You know, I'm wondering when we're going to get that all clear. Oh, I, I think it's coming right now.
Do you know what? I am really looking forward to this episode now. Because I Dude. know, doing, knowing what he did with the longest day, like I like World War stuff. And Dude. I know he'll have done an awesome job on this. Dude, I'm <laughs> telling you. it's. I mean, I listened to it today and I, there, there was one point where I was listening to it and I thought, oh, it, we're probably getting close to it being over. And I looked at the time and it was like a whole lot more left to go. And I was just like, oh, yeah, I forgot we, he goes into this. It's, it's, it's so cool. It's, mm-hmm. so, it's just so good.